Let your continual mercy, O Lord, cleanse and defend your church. And because it cannot continue in safety without your help, protect and govern it always by your goodness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. And that's the collect appointed for today, Sunday, July the 31st, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. Um, it's been an interesting week, to say the least. So at the wedding last weekend, I started, I woke up Saturday morning and I had a little bit of a scratchy throat, but it went away. It didn't last. And the day went well. Everything was great. Um, we uh, we took somebody home, and after we dropped them off, um, my energy level just went through the floor. I don't know what happened, but man, it was weird. Um, and so... Uh, the next day, I, you know, I felt pretty good when I got up. Didn't wasn't struggling with anything. Didn't that sore throat thing wasn't there. I had some back pain on the way down there um, on Saturday. Sunday we went out. We hiked about three and a half miles, and um, I worked out. Did you know some stuff here at the house? Monday, more of the same. We got up. We we took a, a really good hike that day. It's about nine hundred feet of elevation gain in a mile and a quarter up to a place called Bear, Big, Little Bear Walla Falls. Um, came back, just felt just, you know, like I had an allergy issue or something like that. I thought maybe I was getting a summer cold. Um, Suzanne had a little bit of a, uh, sinking spell, maybe is the best way to say it on the way back, but it just, you know, for a second. And so then Tuesday morning, I woke up at like four o'clock in the morning, couldn't sleep, had a fever. So, um, was up for a while. Uh, after Suzanne got up, I said, I'm gonna go back to bed for a little bit. And when I got up, I said, you know what I think I'm going to do? I felt all right. Um, and then so you don't think I'm going to do anything. I'm going to take a COVID test. And the only reason was because nothing seemed to make any sense. I mean, I couldn't make sense of this symptom and that symptom. And there was a time when I just, you know, started sweating and didn't have a fever or anything. I couldn't figure out what was going on. The only kind of consistent thing was, is that my back was hurting me. And so I took a COVID test and sure enough, we both have COVID. So we've had that this week and, um, we're, we're both fine. <laughs> I would say that mine is a very, very mild case. I had Lyme disease about, I don't know, six years ago, something like that. And I had a very mild case of Lyme disease as well. Um, lasted about three days and I had a fever for three days and they misdiagnosed it the first time. And then we were out the next day in the yard and, and I needed to get, I wanted to get some sun. So I took my shirt off and Susan said, oh my gosh, look at you. You got these weird dots and there were these bullseyes on me. And so went back to the doctor and they said, oh my gosh, you have um, Lyme disease. And they did all the blood tests and everything to prove it and gave me the antibiotics. And I have not had any other problem with it. And with this, I mean, I, I literally could have gone hiking and worked out every single day, but I didn't because, well, I have COVID. So I didn't want to spread it to other people who might have a worse time with it than I did. But anyway, so we've been dealing with COVID this week, but it's been... As I said, no big deal. I've worked out at home every single day and done everything that I wanted to do. I taped a bunch of um, daily podcasts. So, you know, um, I, I, you can probably hear that I'm still a little bit um, congested, but it doesn't bother me. It's only it's I can hear it when I speak, but I but I don't feel it in any shape, form or fashion. So I don't know. Suzanne's had it a little worse than me. She's had a sore throat. Um, and some and more congestion and a cough. I haven't had a cough at all. Haven't had anything like that. So, any rate, feeling good. So, you know, getting through it. We'll see. I'll test probably Sunday afternoon. I'll test to see. I do these in advance, just a day in advance. So that's that's a heads up for you. But anyway, um, so it's been that kind of a week, which is fine. 
I'm perfectly all right with that. Um, if I've got to get COVID, this is certainly the one to have. Um, certainly in my case, at least. I, that's all I can tell you. But anyway, so we're going to, today is going to be kind of an odd one. You know, there's sometimes, when you know, I've chosen to do the format the way that I do, by the way, just because in a church setting, you would have been there and you would have heard somebody read these three lessons. And so I know you would have heard them. So I choose to read them for you so that I can go through them a little bit at a time and make sure you hear the Word of God, That w- not just John's words. That way, if um, if you hear me say something that, that you think is just wrong, you, you know that I'm reading the Word of God to you <laughs> along the way, you know. So my interpretation might be wrong, but 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 I'm making but but I want you to be have the confidence to know that that I'm reading the word of God to you and so that that matters to me it matters very much to me so we're going to be looking today at a passage from Ecclesiastes and it's Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2 and then skip forward to 12 through 14 verses and then over to 2 and pick up 18 to 23 the argument is the same all the way through i don't know how much you might know about the book of Ecclesiastes but it's attributed commonly to Solomon who was the wisest man who ever lived, um, but and who also had incredible wealth and then, you know, kind of blew it by profligate living and, and uh, married foreign wives who, who then he allowed to have their worship centers in um, the land of Israel, and he got seduced from uh, fidelity to God. And, and so now this is sort of a reflection on Solomon's life about somebody who's had it all, and literally he did. I mean, if there was something to be had in the time that he lived, which was roughly a thousand years before Jesus, if there was something to be had, Solomon had it. So uh, it's he's a guy who said, look, I've had everything, I've experienced everything. And he's looking back on it and saying, you know what, none of it really actually means anything at all. And so he's saying that, and that, so that's the summary of the theology of Ecclesiastes. Um, and then we've got, we're in Luke's gospel, and it's a little bit of an odd one. There's something in here that I'm going to talk about that I had only noticed recently, and that's so it's in Luke 12:13 to 21, and Jesus is going to do some. Uh, he's going to tell a parable in here that talks about your values. You know, what is it you value? And then um, in in Colossians, it's Colossians 3:1 to 11, and Paul is is saying there's a way to test what it is you truly value. You know what your what your values are, what your summum bonum, which is the the highest good. It's a philosophical category, and and so you can, there's an easy way to tell it. Paul says, and, and that is to look at your life and see what it is you actually value. You know, you can say anything you like, but but I, well, you know, I, it's like I had a when I worked at Amazon, I had a lady that <clears throat> called after the 2016 election, and this was in like. It was before, I think it was before the inauguration. It was a robocall because that we got, we got a memo that morning that said, hey, look for calls like this, people who call to complain that we carried Ivanka Trump merchandise. And so this lady called, and she starts all that with me, and, and, and I'm like, look, you know, I, you know I'll, whatever. <laughs> There's, I, we sell things that make money. There, there's nothing immoral about selling Ivanka Trump merchandise. Um, so, and we sold a lot of things that would have been questionable morality, let's say, but, but not Ivanka Trump dresses or whatever. So anyway, I mean, you know, but, but that's the way it is in America today. You, you, you've, you've got to do this. So she called and she went through this whole thing. And at the end of it, she said, I, I'm not going to buy anything from Amazon anymore. Uh, and, and I haven't bought anything since the election. I said, ma'am, can I interrupt you? She said, what's that? Cause I said, you know, here's the reality. You can tell your friends all you like that you've not bought anything from Amazon since the uh, since the election. 
you can't tell the guy looking at your uh, at your account that because I, I can tell you right now that's just a lie. So but but that's the thing is, is that that sometimes things do we, we it, sometimes things are easier to tell than you realize they are what your values are. So that's kind of what Colossians is. And so the, the theme of, of all of this is to set your sights on and have your values in the right place. Um, all right. So y'all have a good week. No, I'm kidding. So the the first question that, that we have to ask, and, and this is this is from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is a Presbyterian statement of faith. So the first question there is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And so it took Solomon a while <laughs> to get to that, to understand that. But that's ultimately what he does understand. And, and see if you can hear some of the things in here. And, and so he, he begins with vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. All. Not some, all. Everything, he says, is vanity. And he's right. He is exactly right. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity says the preacher. And the word there, so you'll know, is uh, the Hebrew word there is hevel. And you, you're familiar with this word. You use it as a proper name, Abel. It's the same thing. And what it means is sort of vapor um, or mist. It's sort of like, you know, in the wintertime when you go outside and, and it's cold and you breathe. <sighs> and you see that, that vapor come out. And then it just immediately goes away. It doesn't hang in the air. It, it goes away immediately. That's what that that that's what that word means. Um, another way to look at it is you you could say you could translate it as the word absurd. And it and it is. I mean, life is absurd. There, there's no question that life is absurd. We're going to talk about Albert Camus a little later, who was a French philosopher and writer. Um, he, he was an existentialist writer who who questioned what what is the meaning of life. And what he said is, is that, what, that, that it's an absurdity because here we are presented with life and we, we question and say, what is the meaning of this? And then he says the universe is silent. And so that's the absurdity of life is, is that we're put here and we can question things, but there's, there's no answer to those things. So anyway, that, that absurdity or vanity is one way to do it. The absurdity is another, vapor, breath, whatever. But it's the same word as Abel's name, actually. And if you think about it for a second, you'll see why he would be named that. Because it would be one who was just, you know, was there and then disappears. And so his, his life was sort of like a vapor in some ways, that, that he came on the scene and then was no more. And uh, so that's Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2, and now we jump forward to 12 to 14. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. So he's authenticating himself and saying, that's who I am. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out wisdom, by wisdom, all that's done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. And so it, what he says is, is that, that I've, I've tried by wisdom to understand life, and I can't. I've tried by looking at everything under the sun to understand it, and there's no understanding to be had as long as you're looking under the sun. You have to look above the sun in order to get under, true understanding. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. So he, started, he began to think about the, the, the end of what he does. 
He might have been he he might have enjoyed the labor that he that he made, but at the end of the day, he looked up and said, "You know what? I realized that the end of my labor was that that I might give it to the guy after me, whoever my son or whatever is, and who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool." So no matter what I do, you know, all the pleasure went out of things because I realized some idiot might get it and and just blow it. And, and, and my labor then would have meant nothing at all in the grand scheme of things. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. So what was the point of my work? This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who didn't toil for it. So what he realized is, well, ultimately you can't take it with you. And that's part of the thing with the, the Egyptian pyramids and, and burial practices be, from that time. There's a, there was a belief in the afterlife, but that it was such an analog for the, for this life was such an analog for that, that you would need the same sort of stuff in the afterlife that you needed in this life, and that you would enjoy the same sort of stuff, and it might not actually be there. So they put it into the pyramids and put it into the burial chambers and things like that, so that, well, when you got there, it'd be there. But Solomon knew better than that. He knew you can't take it with you. You got to leave it behind, and who knows what kind of person is going to inherit it. He says, This is also vanity. The despair over this is and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is vexation. Even in the night, his heart doesn't rest. This is also vanity. He's already told us everything is vanity, so everything he's going to say after that, he's got to say, this is also vanity. And so it, the, the question that he's asking is, what's the point of any of this? Is there a point to it? And, and that's where philosophy comes in. And you remember last week we were told that by, in Colossians not to be, be allowed ourselves to be taken uh, by deceit and empty philosophy. Well, let me give you a little empty philosophy. So Camus said that the, the, the problem is, is that there's this unreasonable silence of the universe in response to the question of what's the meaning of life. He said there's an unreasonable silence to that, and that's the absurdity of it all. And so what does he do? Well, you've got to come up with some sort of an answer. And so what he says is, is that he, he rules out God as a possibility for meaning. So if you've already said there is no great intelligence in the universe, then well, you've got to construe meaning somewhere else. You can look to other people, but they're doing the same thing you are. They might have more wisdom than you, so they might know a little something more, but you can't talk to religious people, so we're going to rule out a whole lot of other people that we can't even talk to because those people don't have anything to offer me. And so the, the question then becomes, <clears throat> am I free? As a human being, am I free? Um, only if... I declare myself to be free, and even, only if I emancipate myself from rules and constraints that are externally imposed. So I can only be free if I say no to those external constraints, except for some of those things I can't actually say no to, that people enforce that. So morals, then, okay, how about that? How about the things that are not enforced? And that's exactly what society's doing today. We're throwing off all moral restraint. You know, they used to define, I don't know whether they still do or not, they used to say that, that one of the great characteristics of post-modernity was its, its um, extreme skepticism towards meta-narratives. And a meta-narrative is an overarching story of things.
the Bible. So there's an extreme skepticism to that. Well, except that's not exactly right, because what we've seen to is, is that there's an extreme skepticism towards old meta-narratives. There, there's certainly no skepticism towards novel meta-narratives. If you want to start down that road with the transgender stuff and, and the critical race theory and all that kind of stuff, that meta, those meta-narratives, those are perfectly acceptable. And in fact, it's wrong if you question them. You're not a skeptic. You're a conspiracy nut. I mean, and that's exactly the way it goes. There's, so there's no, there's no skepticism to meta-narratives. There's skepticism to existing meta-narratives. The, you know, the ones that have made society a coherent thing. No, there's skepticism towards those, but there's no skepticism towards a novel meta-narrative because they'll embrace those in a second so long as it gives them power because it's all about the will to power, right? Isn't that what Sartre said? It's all about the will to power. Well, the most powerless thing in the world is a man dying on a cross so that I can have eternity. We tell a very powerless meta-narrative. We can be accused of one thing, right? You guys want a theocracy. I do. In fact, I was, in, I was instructed, along with every disciple of Jesus, to pray for it. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because I believe it's best. But, but that's Camus' view of this. And so that's where then you, 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 he comes from Nietzsche. So Nietzsche says, here's the thing is, is there's progression in life. And so the first progression is to carry more and more burdens until you humble yourself. And then you realize I'm throwing off those burdens. And now I have to face the one that says thou shalt not. And I say, I will. And so now I've stared down power. Well, that works as long as there's no ultimate judgment. And so what does Nietzsche say you do after that? After you stared down the power of the lion and said, I will do what I want to do, after you've thrown off all that baggage, then you become like a child and you play. And what do you do? Well, you, you, you explore and you create values and you discard them if they don't work. Well, that sounds fun. But the problem is what happens with that is, is that if you're in a vacuum then the only person that's harmed by your play in that way, your experimentation, is you. What happens when those people run the government, run the world, run the media? We have a problem, Houston. And, and that, that's one of the great issues of the day, is when you throw off God, you don't get better. You get people who make it up as they go along, and that's a problem. And I don't care which side of the aisle you're on. It's the, it characterizes both sides. That's the honest truth. And so just we need to be better at seeing that. We need to be showing a different kingdom with different values. So Kierkegaard, who's also an existentialist, but the difference is he's a Christian existentialist. He, he writes um, a book, and he writes about John eleven four when Jesus says of Lazarus, this sickness is not unto death. And so he has one of the characters raised the question, wouldn't this statement be true even if Jesus had not raised Lazarus from the dead? Well, the human conception of death is the end. The Christian conception of death is it's a transition to eternal life, right? And in this way, for us, death isn't something to fear. Instead, the inability to die 
It's what's actually something to be feared. And the sickness unto death is what Kierkegaard calls despair, actually. According to him, an individual is in despair if he doesn't align himself with God or God's plan for the self. And there's a truth in that, because there's this eternal question then, is this the meaning of life? I can't know, because I'm still experimenting. And there's, there, there's no way that I can ever know something. What is the teleology of the thing? What's the end of this thing? I can't know that. And therefore, I have to continually experiment. And even when I think I've found it, it's only contingently so because it could change. Because the world changes around me. But, but, but it matters, and we need to have a why. We, we need to have a meaning of life. We need to have a why. And that's Viktor Frankl, who wrote the book, Man's Search for Meaning. He says, he who has a why to live can bear almost any how. And what he writes about that is he's speaking about his experience in Nazi prison camps. And what he saw was people that fell into despair because they had no hope, they had no compelling vision for the future, they had no belief that they would ultimately be taken out of this concentration camp. He said those people died quickly. Likewise, another group of people who died quickly were those who had unreasonable and unbased hopes. People who, who, who decided we will be out of here by Christmas. Once Christmas passed, seems an odd thing, but it's what he said, Christmas in a Jewish concentration camp. But at any rate, that's what they said, that, that once Christmas comes, we'll get out. And then once Christmas passed and they weren't out, they died. They had lost their hope. So why do I want to live was, the, was actually the question that they had to ask. And it's important that we make that determination, that, that we not go into um, an escapism that says, this will happen by this day, and then we're continually disappointed in such a way that, that we lose everything, and we lose our minds because the hope is disappointed. In the gospel today, Somebody in the crowd yells at Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It's actually a question that rabbis did do. They, they would in, interpret the law, and part of that would be inheritance law. So this guy wants Jesus to do that. And Jesus' answer is, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Well, that's an interesting question for two different reasons. One of which is, not the least of which in my mind, is that's exactly the question. When Moses decided to align himself with the people of God in Exodus 2, he, he first killed an Egyptian who was mistreating some Hebrews. Then the next day, he sees a couple of Hebrews arguing, struggling with each other. and He goes to the one in the wrong, and he asks him why he's doing this and tells him to stop. And the man's response to him is exactly what Jesus says here. Who made you judge or arbitrator over us? And Moses can't answer that question. That's why he flees into the wilderness. And so while he's there, when God calls him to come, he says, look, if I go back to the people of Israel, first he says, who am I to go and tell Pharaoh to do this? And God says, I'll be with you. He says, okay, now when I go back to the Jews, <laughs> this is trickier now. When I go back to the Jews, who am I going to tell them sent me? He's gonna, he wants to answer that question. Who made you judge and arbitrator over, over us? He says, what am I going to tell them? He says, you tell them I am sent you. So why does Jesus ask that question here? It's really strange that he would use exactly the same words that were used of Moses. And here's, a, here's my tentative conclusion on why that would be. 
the reality is, is that that is not Jesus's role in the incarnation. That's not his role. His role is not to come and be the judge. No, he's to be the savior, the deliverer, the redeemer. He will, when he comes back, like Moses did, be the judge, but not now. And so when this guy wants him to be that right now, Jesus has to say, no, I'm not going to make the mistake Moses did. Moses made a mistake when he did that because he was trying to step in a role that God had for him, but he was doing it in his own time, not God's time. And so Jesus here, this this is a temptation, I believe, to step into his ultimate role, but it's not the role God gave him in the incarnation. Now, the other side of it is, is this guy's asking the Messiah to decide something as silly as an inheritance law, and, and really? Messiah was standing in front of you, and that's what you wanted from him, was to divide an inheritance. But I really do believe that what, I'm, what I just said to you is the right thing, that, that the timing of God was such that at the time Moses tried to step into it, that wasn't the timing. Later, he could explain to him who made him ruler and judge. Not then. Because the time hadn't come. And it's the same here. This is another way, I believe, of Jesus saying the time hasn't come for that. The time will come, and he will be the ruler and judge over all. So then he said to them, he looked at the people and said, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Because he saw the heart of that question, that the guy wanted something. There was something most important thing to him was the thing that he asked Jesus to deal with. Jesus is there. He's healed people. He's given, you know, he's giving eternal life. He's teaching in a way that nobody ever teaches. And this guy just wants to talk about the laws of inheritance. So Jesus sees this is about covetousness. One's life doesn't consist in the abundance of his possessions. Well, that's pretty much Solomon's argument from Ecclesiastes. And he told him a parable. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he said to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? That's a legitimate problem, right? I mean, he, he's got way bigger crops than he has barns to store things in. He's got some options. He has two options, right? Or three options, really. One is he could have sold a lot of these things. Two is he could have given away to the poor a lot of those things. And, and the third thing is he could just build bigger barns. So what does he decide to do? He said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. Well, that's a legitimate option. He doesn't have any responsibility to do anything beyond that, and Jesus doesn't criticize him for the decision to do that. That's not ultimately what Jesus criticizes, because that that stuff belongs to him. God's blessed him. He can do what he wants with it. But then, here's the problem. He took a material issue and made it a spiritual one. He says, I'll say to my soul, whoa, 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 okay. I mean, you can say to my soul, I'm very thankful. I'm very blessed. God's done great things for me. That's not what he says. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. His solution is practical, but his conclusion is spiritual. He's willing to allow his soul to be nourished by stuff. Wow. Now, there's your problem. But that's the problem of American society. It's the problem of Western society. It's the reason that we get into all this other nonsense. Because we are soul satisfied with stuff that's not meant to satisfy the soul. But we're not satisfied, and we know it, and therefore we seek after novelty. And we chase the wind. And we can't define what a woman is. God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? 
Do you hear Ecclesiastes in that? The things you've prepared, who will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So you're, you're delighting in and finding your soul's satisfaction in stuff. Well, your soul will be going without that stuff. You, you forgot what you should be taking delight in. And then so in the, it's, it's you know, it's funny that, that the hope, as I said, that Viktor Frankl said, that hope is the most important thing. And hope is to say, this will get better, which is the goal of eternal life. And to go back and revisit what Kierkegaard said about would the, would the statement that this sickness is not unto death be true even if Jesus had not raised Lazarus from the dead? And the reason it wouldn't be is because ultimately he will be raised from the dead. And so I had to think about that a good bit this week. And so, yes, it is. It is true, and I know that. And that's exactly what I, what I tried to say at Will's funeral. This is that, okay, so we, we celebrate and rejoice because God did this great healing a year ago. Did his death take away from that in any shape, form, or fashion? The answer is no. Heavens, no, it did not. He was going to die. It just happened it was a lot sooner than any of us wanted or expected. But it doesn't diminish the miracle of the healing from the year before because I believe something greater happened than just healing him physically. I believe that his soul was healed and made fit for the kingdom of God and eternity. That's the healing I need. That's the healing Will needed. It, it's, it, no. We, we need to understand that, that my hope couldn't possibly have been in Will living a long, healthy life. Because even then, ultimately, it ends. Unless Jesus comes back. But, but our hope has to be reasonable. It has to be real. And, and reasonable doesn't mean that, that it's foreseeable, that miracles can't happen. No, no, no. I expected a miracle. And I knew it would be a miracle. And the doctors knew it would be a miracle. Hmm. But no, I got the miracle that I needed and then some. And his death doesn't take away from that. Not at all. Absolutely not. Any more than, than you know, as I said, Lazarus ain't walking around today. Does that cheapen the miracle? No. And that's the way we need to, I mean, God's doing this in me. It's not, I didn't, I didn't just wake up one day this way. No, I mean, God shows me these things and he gives me life experiences that, that, and then says, what are you going to make of that? And I, and I have to look at him and say, I don't know. You have to make something of it for me. It's like David in Solomon's father in Psalm 8, when he looks up and he's, he's his shepherd out in the middle of nowhere, looking up into the heavens and saying, you know, I'm amazed at the works of your hands. And then he finally comes down to, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? You've made him a little lower than the angels for a season of time. You know, David's asking, what's the meaning of life? What's the meaning of my life? And little did that shepherd boy know that, that his destiny and the meaning of his life was going to be inextricably bound up with God's plan for the world throughout all eternity. And that he would be a king, that his children would be kings, and from him would come Messiah. David, you can't even imagine how important you are in God's cosmic plan while you're out there tending sheep and pondering the meaning of life. It, it's, we never know what God's going to do with our lives. I didn't know two years ago that what would happen. I didn't know a year ago then what would happen. 
I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. All I know is, is that today I have to submit myself to him and I have to align myself with God's purpose because he alone is eternal. I can't look at him and say, I will do whatever I want to do. Not, not expect to have a, a really productive life or even a meaningful life. I could have experiences, but I won't have a meaningful life. And so in the Colossians passage, what Paul says is, is if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. In other words, he saved you. Seek the things that are above, those things that are above the sun, not the things below the sun. He says, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That's, that's Solomon's ultimate conclusion, by the way, is that everything under the sun is vanity. So you've got to find the meaning and purpose in life above the sun. He says, he says, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are of the earth. These things are passing away. doesn't mean we can't enjoy them, and it's exactly what it said last week. Take us through things temporal so that we lose not things eternal. Well, so we need to understand how to rightly value the things temporal, or we'll lose the things eternal. He says, so set your minds on things that are above, not on things of the earth. For you've died. You died. That old self has died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You'll only fully know who you are and, and the meaning of your life once you stand before him and, and you're clothed with his righteousness. And once you are a new creation, then you can see the meaning and value of your life. But only if you live it now with that understanding that your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you. And see, this is the thing that I said, that we can tell what our values are based on what we do with our lives. And so he says, put to death that stuff that's earthly in you. Because what it shows you is, is that you value earthly stuff, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Don't be so attached to stuff on earth and the pleasures of earth that you lose eternity. There's nothing wrong with pleasure, but it's got to be handled in the right way. So the pleasure between a, a, a man and a woman needs to exist within the bonds of marriage. So all these other things, there's nothing wrong. There's, there's nothing wrong with desire. Paul says evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. Great word. Absolutely nails it completely. If you want something that badly, it's an idol to you. He says, on account of these gods, the wrath of God is coming. And in these two, you once walked when you were living in them. He's saying, but, but you shouldn't be anymore because you died. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And how we can be renewed, renewed in knowledge after the image of the creator is to know the creator and seek to know the creator. Seek things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. If you seek in those things, then your mind's going to be renewed with that knowledge. And it's going to change the things that you seek after more and more and more. The more you seek after, it's the greatest self-fulfilling prophecy in the world. If you seek after those things, you will find their inherent value to be so much greater than anything else that you will continue to seek them. The more you know, the more you want to know. 
and you're going to be transformed by seeking those things, is what Paul's saying. Here, there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And what are we consumed with mostly in our world today? All that other stuff, all those other identities, Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. We, we could just change those identities to whatever it is today, whether it's a sexual identity or a gender identity or who knows what the difference is between the two of those in some instances. You know, wh- wh- whether my privilege is here, or your privilege is there or whatever, and all these things. And, and we're encouraged to have 50 different identities. Nope. Paul says there ain't but one identity you need, and that is Christ, because he is all and in all. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. We, we've got to be better at that as Christians, to be honest with you. We've, we've become too worldly in the church, and, and the, the reality is we've used the methods of the world, and, and we've become pragmatic, and, and instead of being a new creation and a different people set apart. And that's what we're called to be. And we need to show the world that we have different values, and we need to show those values are superior because of our passion towards those things. We need to be the people that are seeking after those things so hard that the world takes note and says, what is the deal with those people? That, that's what we need to be. We need to be those people who have found happiness, contentment, and joy, not in our stuff, but in Him.